Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapture. I went from Atari to Nintendo pretty quickly, and Nintendo swept through my town like you wouldn't believe. After about a year of Nintendo bliss, my friend Sean came over to my house and told me he was going to get a new system, something called a Sega. I had no idea what he was talking about. I had heard of Sega in terms of the games that they had in arcades, but a Sega system, that was completely off my radar at that point. I was so pulled into the NES world. So he kept talking this system up during the week to me and another good friend of mine. This other friend was pretty hardcore Nintendo. So he started making fun of this other system, saying that it was some sort of no-name system that no one was ever going to play. Now, we would hang out together all the time, three of us really good friends. That very next weekend, Sean didn't call us. We didn't hear from him. We called his house. Nobody answered. So we go and spend the weekend without him playing some games, playing our Nintendo. The next Monday, we come to school, and the first thing out of our mouths were, where were you? He said, I was busy playing my Sega. And we thought, oh, that's really funny. Haha, you're playing your Sega. We bet you still wish you had a Nintendo. Now, he had had an Atari 5200 before that, and his house was my big exposure to the 5200. I had always expected him to make the NES jump so that we could exchange cartridges and all this, so it was really weird that he had gotten the Sega system. The whole week, he talked about Sega, he argued in favor of it, everybody at school who played Nintendo made fun of him. It was really sad. He was my best friend, so of course, I didn't join in the mockery. Plus, he had proven me wrong with the Atari 5200. I knew that was a good system, so maybe the Sega thing would be great. But I had my doubts. How could something top the Nintendo Entertainment System? The next weekend, he said, hey, why don't you guys come over on Saturday and play in the morning? Then we can go out later, ride our bikes, do stuff outdoors. If you hadn't figured it out, these two guys were the members of the bike team that I referenced in the A-Team podcast. So me and my other friend, we meet on the way to his house, and he's saying, well, this shouldn't take long. Let's be nice about it. I'm like, well, of course we'll be nice about it. He's like, nah, yeah, yeah, but I guess he felt bad that he had laid into him pretty badly. So we get to the house, sit down, he fires up the Sega. Now the Sega, when you first see it, looks pretty far and it's a little more high-techy looking than the gray Nintendo box. It had slots that we'd never seen before. It had an, an unusual looking controller. If you played games in America, most likely what you were exposed to at that point had been the Atari joystick, maybe a Coleco or Atari 5200 joystick, and then the NES controller. So any new controller was completely novel. I think the first game we sat down to play was Alex Kidd in Miracle World. Now, he had two or three games, one of them Alex Kidd. The other was a shooting game we didn't get around to, and the third was OutRun. It's as if we stepped into a time machine. We got in the time machine at 9 o'clock, the Sega Master System was turned on, and boom, it was 7 o'clock at night. Now, I can't say that all the games on the Sega Master System were good. There was a lot of garbage, but the games that they did well, they did really well. That one day on the Master System influenced me terribly. I needed to have a Sega after that. I had to run with my Nintendo for now. I had a lot of games and a lot of time invested, but it influenced my decision on what my next console should be. And when the time came, I got a Sega Genesis or Mega Drive. The moral of the story? Never make fun of your friends' consoles, because those could be your future consoles.
On today's show, we're going to talk about the Sega Master System. We're going to talk about its inception, its creation, its debut, Metagirl's back with the top five list, and we have a new contributor. Brian Boone, who has been a writer for the site for a couple of weeks now, has contributed his first segment to the Retroist podcast, which I think you will enjoy as well. So without further ado, let's start the show. story of the Sega Master System starts back in 1983 when the SG-1000 was released in Japan on July 15th. This is the exact day that the Nintendo Famicom, or as we know it, the NES, was released in Japan. Video games were very popular in Japan, and Sega wanted a piece of the home video game action. The thing is, the Famicom was wildly popular, and try as they might, Sega's early systems could never reach the proper market penetration to be considered a success. But Sega labored on. It had enough success that it was being profitable, so they created an SG-1002 in July of 1984. Now, all these systems were significant in that the technology in the SG-1000 would be used directly in the Sega Master System. Sega's getting buried by the Famicom, so two years, give or take a couple of months, after the release of the SG-1000, they released the Sega Mark III. It was similar to the SG-1002, but it had the addition of improved video hardware and more RAM. In Japan, the system also was compatible with earlier games, which allowed it to actually retain its former audience and build upon it with people who were impressed by its technology. One of the most unusual features that came out of this evolution was the dual media input for the system. You had one cartridge slot and you had one card slot. Now, cartridges were the higher capacity games, while the cards would be smaller budget games. This slot could also be used for expansions, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Despite the technological advantages, the Sega could never catch on in Japan, so they decided to seek out other markets. They gave the machine a new design and marketed it in America under a name we'd all come to know, the Sega Master System, or SMS. The Sega Master System was released in the U.S. in June of 1986. This was approximately one year after the NES was released in the U.S. It sold for $200 and was very different from what you saw when you got your NES. The NES was pretty boring. It was just a gray box. The Sega Master System, on the other hand, looked like a stealth jet. It was black with red trim and it was sort of pyramidal. It would taper upward toward the cartridge slot and the buttons were sort of flush with the system. It looked futuristic. It looked new and exciting. The problem was that Nintendo had been out for a year and it had taken over where the Atari had left off. So they already had close to 90% of the market when Sega came over. Sega labored for a long time in the market, but was only able to share that last 10% with Atari during its entire run. It wouldn't be until the Genesis came out that Sega would have some market success in the United States. But that didn't mean that the Sega Master System wasn't popular. It was indeed very popular in other countries, namely the countries of Europe 
and Brazil. Since it was doing so poorly, the CEO of Sega at the time, Heio Nakayama, decided that it wasn't worth fighting for the NES-dominated markets, and he sold the rights to the Master System in North America to, of all people, Tonka. But Tonka didn't really do anything with the license, and the popularity continued to decline. At the time, this was considered an odd move, but you can't really put any blame on Nakayama because he had never actually marketed a console before, and I guess he didn't want to waste the company's limited resources on a battle against a company that had a huge entrenchment. The rights to distribute the Sega Master System would actually revert back to Sega in 1990, and they would make a second run at distributing it as a low-cost video game console. But it would be too little too late. The gaming public had already moved on to different systems. Most people who were playing Sega were already playing the Genesis or Mega Drive. Begin technical overview. The Sega Master System was a powerhouse compared to other systems that had come before it. It had an 8-bit Zilog Z80 CPU. Its graphics were run by a Texas Instruments TMS-9918. This allowed up to 32 simultaneous colors, 16 for sprites, 16 for backgrounds, and you could choose from a palette of 64 colors. This processor also allowed for a screen resolution of 256 by 192 and 256 by 224. The PAL-CCAM version also supported 256 by 240. The sound on the North American version was from a Texas Instruments SN76489. This allowed for four-channel sound, and in Japan, they had the superior Yamaha FM sound system. The system had 64 kilobits of RAM and 128 kilobits of video RAM. On the American console, you had a game card slot and a game cartridge slot. The Japanese consoles used 44-pin cartridges. The non-Japanese used a 50-pin cartridge. This was to allow for regional lockout. And technical overview. As I mentioned, the Sega Master System did a lot better in other countries. In Europe, it did well, especially because the NES wasn't distributed in some countries. In fact, it did so well in Europe that the console, even though it was discontinued in America much earlier, held on until 1995. The place that the SMS really was shining was in Brazil, which was a market that Nintendo did not take advantage of it all. Down in Brazil, the system was so popular, they were able to keep the SMS going in one form or another there, right up to the current day. You could still buy the Sega Master System 3 in Brazil. With the Master System 3 that is available, it has no cartridge port. Instead, it has 131 built-in games. So if you want to play a game that required a peripheral, like the light gun or 3D glasses, you would need to get your hands on an older unit. We should be happy that Sega had such success in all these other countries because due to that success, they were able to work on a second mass-produced Sega Master System. And this was the Sega Master System 2, which would be the last non-regionally distributed SMS. It was basically just a Sega Master System that was trimmed down. With the removal of the reset button on the system, the expansion port, and the card slot, now here's Killscreen 256 with a lot of fun facts and lots of great Sega stuff that you can get online. Hey there, retro boys and girls. Killscreen 256 here, and this week I have the items you need to add to that retro video game collection. We're talking Sega Master System. Now, when looking for a system, you're going to want to keep a few things in mind here to make sure you have the complete package. The Mark II or the Master System II, released in 1990, did not have the card slot that was used to connect and synchronize the 3D glasses. So if you want to use them, make sure you get the Sega Master System 3. Also, the Master System 2 lacks a reset button and expansion port, but don't worry, it was never really used. 
used. Now, the Master System 2 had Alex, Kid, and Miracle World built into the system. This was Sega's way of competing with Nintendo and the Super Mario Bros. game. And even a few of these systems had the last licensed release game for the Master System, and that was Sonic the Hedgehog. So if you want a complete Master System experience that has the card slot, 3D glass support, the light gun, rapid fire support, and the Yamaha YM2413FN sound chip, make sure you're getting the Sega Master System 3 and not the 2. I found the American system being sold on various sites for as low as $40 and as high as $200 for ones that are in much better condition. Comes with a box, instructions, looks almost brand new. While the Japanese system, I've seen as low as $60 for the heavily used and as high as $300 for ones that look almost brand new. Okay, now you have your system, let's get some accessories. A rare item that was only sold in Europe was the Sega Handle Controller. This was a steering wheel style controller. Another controller that you can get was the Sega Sports Pad, which is a trackball controller. There was the Sega Control Stick, which was an arcade style stick. Another type of controller you could get was the Sega Handle Controller. This was a paddle style controller that looked a lot like the ones you could find on the Atari 2600 system. The Master System in Brazil had a six-button controller, which was very similar to the one that the Sega Genesis would get. At these controllers, with the 3D glasses, the light phaser gun, and a rapid-fire unit that you used on your standard controller to give you turbo play, and you are ready to go. Now, all these controllers I was able to find for as high as $100, which were factory-sealed brand-new condition, to also mid-range at $40, which were still really good condition, and as low as $10 for ones that were heavily used and beat up. Now, for those hardcore system collectors out there, you're going to want to look for this one is made by a Brazilian company called Tech Toys. It's called the Master System Compact. It was a handheld unit that played all the Master System games. They also made a pink version called the Master System Girl. Now, I couldn't find these items listed anywhere online, so I have no idea what they're going to cost you. But since they're so rare, I'm guessing you're going to pay a high price. Now, in late 2006, there was also another re-release of the system in a handheld form. It was a small device powered by three AAA batteries and had a much brighter matrix screen contained 20 Game Gear games and Sega Master games. It was released under several brands including one of them being Coleco. Now before we talk games I have to give you a quick lesson on a video game term. The video game term is the PAL region. PAL region is a video game publication territory which covers most of Asia, Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and most of Western Europe. The reason why I'm telling you this is because the Master System had a really long lifespan in other parts of the world long after the Japanese and US versions died. And when you look for games, you're going to come across this term very often. Sonic 1 and Sonic 2 were released in the US, Brazil, and the PAL countries. Never saw the light in Japan. I've seen the American copies selling for as low as $5, and foreign copies and the American copies selling for as high as 50 bucks. Street Fighter 2 in 1997 even made an appearance on the Master System. It was in the Brazil market only, and this game was based on the Championship Edition, even though the characters and the graphics looked a lot like Super Street Fighter 2. Plus, this game only had an 8-character roster. I've seen this game selling for around $100. Even the Mortal Kombat series made it onto the Master System. I found a few copies floating around out there, and they're going to run you about 50 bucks. Now, your U.S. release games are going to range from the low end at $2, which are obviously not going to be a good condition game, up to about $100, which will probably have a box and instructions and in really good condition. Factory sealed, ultra rare U.S. release games are going to range from about $100 up to about $200. And if you went the Japanese route for your system, I've seen games as low as $2, mid-range games running about 50 bucks, and the factory-sealed hard-to-find games as high as $200. While many of your PAL and Brazilian games are as low as $20, 
all the way up to the ultra rare factory sealed games running about 500 bucks. Well retro boys and girls, there's a list of items that you should be looking for when you need to add something to that retro video game collection. This is Killscreen256 and until next time, get out there and get collecting. As Killscreen mentioned, the Sega Master System had some great accessories. My favorite was the light phaser and the Sega Scope 3D glasses. The light phaser was a gun that looked like the gun in the zillion Japanese anime series. So it was really much more sleek and futuristic looking than the Nintendo Zapper. It also had the advantage of being heavier, so it had a better heft, and it was much more accurate. Now, the gun itself is pure black, which led to labeling and an outcry from parental groups. On one dramatic occasion in Brazil, where they seem to be Sega Master System crazy, a man used a Sega light phaser to hold a hostage for 10 hours, and he was doing this so that he could collect money for a debt he needed to pay. The total of that debt was about $20 US. 10 hour standoff. It's a great looking gun, but perhaps a bit too realistic. The other very cool accessory was the Sega Scope 3D glasses. And the Sega Scope 3D glasses were much better than any other 3D glass experience I had ever had in a video game up to that point. You would plug the glasses into the card slot. So if you had a later Sega that didn't have the card slot, you were out of luck. So you need to get one of the earlier ones. Now how the glasses work is the LCD screens rapidly alternate between left and right lens being opaque. And this is used in tandem with two different alternating images being flashed from the TV synchronized with the switching of the 3D glasses. And this creates that 3D stereoscopic effect. Sadly, only eight Master System games were 3D compatible. I played a bunch of them, and I thought all of them were great. There was Blade Eagle 3D, Line of Fire, Maze Hunter 3D, Outrun 3D, great, Missile Defense 3D, Poseidon Wards 3D, Space Harrier 3D, that was the money game, and Zaxxon 3D. I think that this might have been my favorite implementation of 3D technology in gaming ever. And I think just being able to play some of these games on 3D is worth the price of buying a vintage unit. One of the more intriguing accessories that never saw the light of day was called the TV Draw Graphic Board. Now this had been released for the Sega Mark III and SC3000 as a Japan market exclusive. And there were many plans to have it to show up in Western markets under a variety of names. But sadly, none of them ever saw the light of day. So drawing on your Sega would have to wait until later systems by Sega. One of the things that Sega did that was really cool was build a game into the system itself that could be accessed from the system BIOS by starting the system without a game cartridge inserted. In the first release of the system, that game was Snail Maze. And when my friend showed me the system and said, hey, watch this, and then a game showed up without a cartridge in, I was completely amazed. Snail Maze was just a simple little maze game where you moved a snail through the maze. In later versions of the SMS, they would build other games into the system, including Astro Warrior, Hang On, Safari Hunt, and even Sonic the Hedgehog. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl with the top five best-selling video game consoles in the U.S. There's a tie at number four and five with the Sony PlayStation Portable and the Microsoft Xbox, which have each sold 11.6 million units. At number three is my favorite, the Nintendo Wii, which has sold 13.4 million units. 
Number two is the Nintendo DS, which sold a surprisingly large 17.65 million units. That's a whopping 35.3 million screens. And the number one best-selling video game console in the U.S. is the Sony PlayStation 2, which has sold an amazing 41.1 million units since its release on October 26, 2000. And there you have it, the Retroist's top five best-selling video game consoles in the U.S. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. When the SMS showed up on American shores, it didn't exactly have a great amount of games. And that was due to many factors. One was that Nintendo really made sure that the people that were working for them developing games couldn't develop games for anyone else. So Sega came over and it had a few good games, but they never really were able to develop in those early years a dependable stable of titles, and especially not enough franchises. In total, 318 games were released for the Sega Master System. The last game to be released was in 1998, and it looked like it was a port of the 1994 Disney-inspired Mickey's Ultimate Challenge. Why it took four years to get from its original release on other systems to the Sega Master Systems is a mystery to me. Now here's Brian with a quick look at the strange and unusual of Sega Master System gaming. Hi, this is Retro's contributor Brian Boone, and I'm here to talk about the weirdest, worst, and all-around ridiculous games that were produced for the Sega Master System. First up, Alex Kidd and High Tech World. Alex Kidd is a humanoid monkey boy who is prince of the planet Ares. Yeah, he was Sega's attempt at a franchise character and appears to be the result of crossbreeding Mario with Donkey Kong. This is the third game in the series, and Alex must get to the new arcade in town, but the map to it has been torn up and scattered, so he has to find them all in a castle and beat the ninjas who want to kill him. So basically, the Monkey Prince wants to go play video games at a crummy suburban arcade in a suburb of space that boasts castles, but also harbors a terrible ninja problem. This game is a mess, although it's probably the only video game in which the object is to make your character play video games inside of the video game. Next, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. The premise of this one is that a drug dealer named Mr. Big has kidnapped some children and taken them to the moon, where he plans to use his giant laser to blow up the Earth. It's up to you, as Michael Jackson, to save the day, and this is done by dancing, which shoots out beams of pure energy, which happens to be the only thing that can destroy drug dealers on the moon. Now, if you had a Sega Master System, you had this next game and maybe didn't even know it. Snail Maze. It was embedded in the machine. To play, you just turned on the unit without a cartridge plugged in. If you've never played it, you're not missing much. This is a game called Snail Maze, after all. You literally move a snail around a maze. Now, however simple it looks, a bug actually prevents you from ever actually finishing the maze, allowing you to share in the snail's infinitely repeating personal hell. And finally, perhaps the worst Sega Master game of all time, Elf. While he's the only 80s sitcom character really suited to a video game, although a Kate and Alley game would have been awesome. Sega really dropped the ball on this one. The game is about Alf running around collecting objects so he can fix his spaceship and fly home. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same plot as E.T., the notoriously terrible game that pretty much brought down Atari in 1982. Only the titular alien is different. And really, any Alf game should consist either entirely or in part of chasing down and eating cats. End of story. And those are your ill-conceived Sega Master System games. I'm Brian Boone, and I will talk to you later. The Sega Master System, as we said, managed to linger on in differing markets for a differing amount of time. But the system and the games refused to die. There was, of course, an accessory made for the Sega Genesis, 
that it would allow you to play your old Sega Master System games. In the U.S., that was known as the Power Base Converter. In Japan, it was known as the Mega Adapter, and in Europe, the Master System Converter. This large device plugged into the Mega Drive or Genesis cartridge slot and covered the entire circular top of the system. The Master System was also given new life in handheld form as the Sega Game Gear. The Sega Game Gear was one of the earlier color handheld gaming systems, and it was basically a Sega Master System made tiny with a smaller screen for lower resolution, but a much higher color palette than the original Sega Master System. There was actually talk of making an adapter that would allow you to play your Sega Game Gear games on the Sega Master System, but since the color palette was so much larger, they could never come up with the correct conversion to allow people to do that. So that was a peripheral that never surfaced. Recently, the Sega Master System games have started showing up on the Wii console. So again, you see Nintendo having the upper hand on Sega. On March 31st, 2008, Wonder Boy was the first SMS game released for this service, and that was followed up later by Fantasy Zone. So I think we can expect a lot more classic Master System games to appear on virtual consoles on different systems. The Sega Master System was maybe a blip on the radar of North American and Japanese video game players. But Europeans and Brazilians have very fond memories of the system. And of course, the lessons that Sega would learn from the Master System would all be applied to their big hit that would follow up and erode Nintendo's hold on the video game industry, the Sega Genesis or Master Drive. But that's a story for another podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. If you have an idea for the podcast, email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks to everyone who contributed to this week's show. Metagirl, Killscreen256, and Brian. They can all be reached via the website. Their contact information is on our About Us page and I'm sure they would love to hear from you. we got lots of really great changes coming to the website that'll hopefully make it better and easier for you to use, and I would love to hear your feedback. So if you have anything to say about the website, suggestions, ideas, or are interested in working on the website, send me an email at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. Sega. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.